You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Acts. Here's Nate. So in turning to Acts chapter 17, we remember now that the gospel has gone into Europe as Paul had been invited from Troas in a vision by a man from Macedonia, European soil, to come over and to help us was what the man in the vision said. And so Paul crossed the water swiftly and went into Philippi where After meeting with Lydia, a Jewish God-fearer, on the outskirts of town at the river, she gave her life to the Lord, and that snowballed into a small little group of believers that began to exist there in Philippi. Now, Paul would eventually return to Philippi, but at the end of chapter 16, he departed, likely leaving Luke behind. And so leaving Philippi, it says in verse 1 of Acts chapter 17, now when they had passed through Amphipolis, which would be about 33 miles southwest of Philippi, and Luke records Apollonia, which would be about 27 miles past Amphipolis, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So What Luke is recording for us is that Paul passed through the largest and most prosperous city of Macedonia, Amphipolis, and also Apollonia, in order to get to Thessalonica. There was something about Thessalonica that Paul, a reason that he wanted to get there for ministry. About uh, about 100 miles south of Philippi, Thessalonica was Paul's desired destination. Part of the reason for that might have been that there was a larger Jewish population in Thessalonica. And again, to be able to follow the format of to the Jew first and also to the Greek would have required that there were Jews inside of a city. And there there was a synagogue, probably a large Jewish population there. And not only that, but, but definitely a large population in general. Approximately 200,000 citizens would have been in Thessalonica at the time. And so Paul saw this as a key city to reach with the gospel. And so he arrived there in Thessalonica. And Paul, verse 2, went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So what we have here now is that for three Saturdays in a row, three Sabbath days in a row, Paul went to the Sabbath and he did everything that he could to explain and prove from the Old Testament scriptures that it was necessary for the Messiah that they waited for to suffer and then to rise from the dead. And then, of course, if that is true, then he would say, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He is that one who came and suffered and rose uh, from the dead. Now, a couple of comments about this. First of all, he was there for three Sabbath days preaching to the Jewish believers. I'm with those who believe that Paul actually stayed in Thessalonica for a longer stretch than just those three weeks of ministry in the synagogue. 
Um, part of the reason that I think that is because a full-fledged church was, was established there, and there seem to be many significant doctrines from reading First and Second Thessalonians that they comprehended that probably would have taken more than three weeks to unpack for new believers. Also, it appears that there was enough time for Paul to have received two, not just one, but two financial care packages from the church in Philippi 100 miles away. Philippians 4, 15 and 16 seem to indicate that, that they brought him care or aid once and again while he was in Thessalonica. So he had to have been long enough there to receive those two financial gifts. And then also, combined with that information, we know from 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 9, and 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 7 to 10, that Paul was there in Thessalonica long enough to have at some point financially supported himself through manual labor. So the gifts from Philippi, the manual labor while he was there seemed to indicate that he was there longer than only these three weeks. So probably what happened is during the three weeks, he was explaining and proving that Christ from the Old Testament in the synagogue to the Jews and then shifted to a Gentile ministry after a large-scale Jewish rejection. And that ministry would have continued on for some period of time before the Jewish jealousy arose and drove him out of town. But it is beautiful here to see that he was explaining and proving, verse 3, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise. You know, the Old Testament prophets, of course, have predicted the suffering of the Messiah before the glory of the Messiah would come. You know, Psalm 22 spoke of that suffering. Isaiah 53 spoke of that suffering. The sacrificial system itself spoke of that suffering. And, of course, we understand that the Old Testament points to Jesus. Genesis 3, verse 15, uh, speaking to the serpent, there is a seed coming and he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so, you know, the old whole Old Testament pointing to the glory of Christ. Even the creation itself, Paul used it as an example of the light of the gospel shining out of darkness into the hearts of mankind. And so Adam points to the gospel in that he's the one who was walking there in sinlessness, but then through sin lost it. And so we were born in Adam, but now we want to be born again into Christ. Or Noah through his ark that he built, which saved his household, so Christ, through his cross, saved his household. Abraham, you know, was saved by faith, and through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. A prophecy about Jesus, his sacrifice to Melchizedek spoke of the priestly ministry of Jesus. His offering up of Isaac spoke of the sacrifice of the only begotten Son of God. Uh, Joseph who was betrayed and thought to be dead by his family and friends, but was actually alive, seated at the right hand of Pharaoh in order to prepare the way for his family as a picture of Christ, who was rejected, but rose and, you know, ascended to the right hand of the Father. 
Moses at the burning bush or the Passover lamb or through the Exodus. And in all these different instances, Christ can be seen. It all points to Jesus. And so Paul was unpacking all of that in Thessalonica during those three weeks. And I don't personally think that he gave three, you know, 35-minute sermons. I think that he, for three full Saturdays, was laying it down and how beautiful it would have been to, to be there studying the Word of God with Paul. And some of them, verse 4, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. So there was a little bit of receptivity amongst the Jewish people, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women, Luke records. But the Jews, verse 5, were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So this is partly Luke's theme, or one of his themes in the book of Acts, that there was a Jewish rejection of the gospel and of their, of Christ, beginning with the cross, but then also through the preaching of the church. And here, that Jewish rejection is continued. And through the jealousy of the Jews over the fruit that Paul was experiencing. And the complaint is so fascinating. They go to the city authorities and they announce that these men have turned the world upside down, you know. What a beautiful accusation that Christianity had turned the world upside down. Or, you know, if some have, as some have said it, it actually was turning the world right side up. But, you know, greatly impacting the world is kind of the idea. And, and here, of course, we're reminded that we are part of a subversive worldwide movement. That it is a message that attacks the very underpinnings of what mankind believes. And so the announcement here to the Roman authorities from the Jews is that there is another king, Jesus. That's what these men are preaching. And, of course, Jewish persecution often pitched this same idea to Rome, that that these Christians are preaching there's an idea of another king, and that's going to get you in trouble with with the only king, with Caesar. This was the idea that they brought to Pilate, and early Christians were often faced with this challenge of burning perhaps a pinch of incense while saying Caesar is Lord. Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, was eventually killed for refusing to do just that. So they bring this accusation to the governing authorities, and the people, verse 8, and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So Jason and his companions, they had to post bond, more than likely saying that they're not, living under our roofs, and if they are, then you can keep our bond money. The brothers, verse 10, immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So what you have in Berea is a smaller community, you know, off the beaten path, about 50 miles away. 
And in this town, the Jews are given an incredible reputation in that they did not allow emotion or tradition to block the truth. They examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So for generations now, Christians have spoken of having a Berean heart or being a Berean with the idea or the concept of searching out the scriptures, searching out the word of God, which is something that believers are able to do by the power of the Holy Spirit and using the minds and intellects that God has given to them. So that was the response in Berea, and many of them, verse 12, therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too. They traveled those 50 miles, agitating and stirring up the crowds. So Paul, when he wrote his letters to the Thessalonians, he wrote about this season. He reminded them that when they received the gospel, they received it in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The hatred... For the word of God, for the gospel, was very strong amongst the Jewish people in Thessalonica. So the persecution was also very strong. Verse 14, Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So they took Paul down to the sea, and then Silas and Timothy remained there. And then another group took Paul even further, as far as Athens. And when they got to Athens, Paul gave them a command, it looks like. He told them to tell Silas and Timothy to come to him in Athens as soon as possible. So Athens wasn't the place that Paul wanted to go. It wasn't part of his original ministry plan to go there, although he would conduct a little bit of ministry there. But his plan was likely to go to Rome, but his plans now are upended by this persecution. And Luke doesn't record it, but it does appear from reading 1 Thessalonians that Silas and Timothy did eventually join with Paul in Athens. And that after gathering there together in Athens, Paul sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to ground the church further. And he then sent Silas, it appears, back to Macedonia as well, but probably to Philippi. And then later, they reconnected in Acts 18 in the city of Corinth. So again, Paul has fled with Silas and Timothy from Thessalonica down to Berea, from Berea down to the coast, and then he sends them away from him and goes down to Athens and tells his companions, hey, tell Silas and Timothy to come meet with me in Athens. They met in Athens eventually. This part is not spoken of in Acts. And Paul sends them back to Thessalonica and to Philippi, goes off to Corinth, and then meets them again in Corinth where they reconvene their ministry together. I think it's important to see here, though, that 
Paul received a massive calling to go into Europe. We remember that from Acts 16, a, a vision from a man of Macedonia. But that call of God led him down a difficult path, yet Paul is not discouraged and he is still moving forward in the ministry that God has for him. Now, well, Paul, verse 16, was waiting for them at Athens. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So now we have Paul just waiting in Athens. He's roaming around the city and his spirit is provoked within him. You have to remember that not only is Paul a Christian, and of course idolatry would provoke the spirit of a Christian, but he's been raised inside of Judaism, which you know, greatly despised idolatry. So here is this Jewish Christian walking around this city and he's noticing all of these different idols. And, you know, Athens and Athenian philosophy had been steeped in all different types of religious expression. By the time Paul got there, the city had faded in glory. There's probably only about 10,000 people in Athens at the time. It's way past its zenith in the 5th and 4th centuries. But still, it's a vital cultural center. It had a famous, worldwidely known university. Their university was known worldwide, is what I'm trying to say. And still, they attracted intellectuals from all over the world, you know, by the time of Paul. But their past was more glorious than their present. And so Paul is is roaming through this shell of a city, and his spirit is provoked within him. You know, the, the beauty and the glory of Athens, it betrayed the root of Athens, which was idolatry. And so he's stirred. And perhaps you, as you've meandered through your own town or your own city, perhaps you have seen the idols of body worship or money worship or intellectualism inside of your town or inside of your city. And perhaps it's brought you to a place of grief or your spirit is provoked within you. And for Paul, his spirit was provoked. And so he goes to the synagogue and reasoned with Jews and devout people or God-fearers, Greeks or Gentiles who had a respect for the God of the Old Testament. And then he would also go to the marketplace and minister there. So he was going everywhere, both fronts preaching the gospel. Some, verse 18, of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Now, here you have these two different major Athenian philosophies coming together, conversing with Paul. The Epicurean philosophy was that pleasure is the chief goal of life. Uh, They pursued pleasure and happiness through the avoidance of excess and the fear of death. And they sought freedom from pain and by loving mankind. Uh, They followed a teacher named Epicurus. So they were called the Epicureans. Uh, For them, that might be the philosophy that says, hey, as long as I'm healthy, as long as I've got my health, I'm a happy person. The Stoics, they attempted to live in harmony with nature and to be very self-sufficient. They followed 
a pantheistic teacher named Zeno and felt like there was a great purpose that was directing history. And they wanted to fit themselves inside of that and to live in harmony again with with nature. This led to a lot of pride and self-sufficiency. So these are more the self-sustaining nature lovers there in the Stoics. And these were the views that were representing the Gentile alternatives to life without God. You know, once you take God out, you've got to have some kind of philosophy to make sense of things. So worship pleasure or worship nature. So Paul is preaching and they say, what does this babbler wish to say? And so others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So let it be known here that as Paul is going to the synagogue and to the marketplace, he is preaching Christ. He preaches Jesus and the resurrection, which of course you cannot preach without preaching the death of Christ. The resurrection cannot be preached without preaching the cross. So Paul preached Christ in Athens. Now, he seems to have majored on the resurrection, which would have been important for them in that culture because they mocked, many of them, the idea of the resurrection. So it says in verse 19, And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. So this is a great opportunity for Paul. The Areopagus was the meeting place of the council. And uh, they had historically had great influence and power, but by the time Paul came around, they merely gave oversight to religion and education. So... More than likely, this isn't a full-on quest for truth, but sort of a gathering of the board of local religions where they're wondering, are we going to allow this man to preach this concept in this town? So Paul here, on one hand, he's gathering, he gets together there and he says, okay, I'm going to do this to try to gain freedom to preach this message in this place. So Here Paul has this opportunity. What is he going to say? So verse 21, all the Athenians and the the foreigners, it says, now all of them who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. This is a a good opening line. He's telling them, look, you've got all of these gods and idols, but Paul says it in as positive of a way as he possibly can. For as I passed, verse 23, along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now this is just incredible mastery of preaching that Paul is doing. He says, look, I went through your town. I saw all of these idols and I found one to the unknown God. So I want to proclaim this unknown God. You claim not to know him, but I know him. And so here he is. Now, what Paul is going to do is that Paul is going to teach them about God. Uh, He won't start from Jewish history or scriptures or prophecy, although the concepts that he's going to teach them about God clearly came from Jewish history and scriptures and prophecy. And nor is he even going to 
refer to the witness of the rains and the fruitful seasons like he did in Acts chapter 14 in the city of Lystra. Here, his message is clear. There is a creator God who's revealed himself in creation, and he's commanded everyone to repent, and they will all give an account of themselves to God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So let's observe all that Paul teaches them about God. First of all, he says in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it. So this speaks of the omnipotence of God. He's the creator of all things. So you are not in creation one with God because God is not creation, but he's a creator. He's separate from his creation. He made all of that. And then he goes on to say, being Lord of heaven and earth. So there they would learn that he is the Lord over all. He is the one who demands worship. He is above all the other gods that they were singing and praising and praying to. And he does not live in temples made with hands. That means that he's larger than all. So creator over all, Lord over all, larger over all. Nor is he served, verse 25, by human hands as though he needed anything. This speaks of the independence of God, that he is in need of absolutely nothing from man. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So here now they're learning of the benevolence of God, that God is a giving God. He's the source of life. And he made from one man, verse 26, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. This helps them understand that they had the same origin as every other person that walked on the face of the earth. They'd all come from Adam. This would have been humbling for the Athenians because they believed that they'd come from a special soil and were unlike other people. Having determined, verse 26, allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So there Paul is highlighting the sovereignty of God that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. This is the love of God, that in every generation God is looking for, longing for people to seek for him and to find him, and he is not far from them. For, Paul says in verse 28, and here he quotes from two of their own prophets, two Greek poets. He says, in him... We live and move and have our being. That came from a poet named Epimenides from about uh, 600 B.C. As even some of your own poets have said, Paul goes on to say, for, and here's their next poet, a Cilician poet named Aratures. He says, for we are indeed his offspring. So in him we live and move and have our being, and for we indeed are his offspring. You know, we came from him. He created us. We are living inside of of him. He's so large and and enormous. He's the Lord over all. He does not live in temples made with hands or made by men. Being then God's offspring, verse 29, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. No, the times of ignorance God overlooked, verse 30, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 
Paul here alludes to times of ignorance that God has overlooked. Now, this does not mean that, you know, all of the sin of previous centuries was simply swept under the rug by God. No, we learn in Romans chapter 1 that there is general revelation for all of mankind, that there is something to learn of God no matter what time frame you live in and no matter whether you've heard the message of the gospel or not. There are certain things that you learn of God by just simply looking to the creation. But there was some kind of element of God in his divine forbearance passing over the former sins, Romans 3, verse 25. In Lystra, Paul said, that in past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Peter said in Acts chapter 10, verse 35, that in every nation anyone who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to him. So Gentiles were always responsible for the general revelation given to them. But now, Paul seems to be saying, they are responsible for God's special revelation in his Son. There's going to come a day where he will judge the world in righteousness and has been risen from the dead. And so these times of ignorance, God will no longer overlook. They must confess, repent of their sin. Christ will be their ultimate judge. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, verse 32, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So a few people did come to faith there in Athens. They balked and scoffed when they heard about the resurrection because many of them had been trained to reject the concept of life after death. Now, in closing... There is a question about Paul's ministry in Athens. And the question is, was Paul's ministry in Athens a failure? You know, no church was founded there. Uh, When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he said that Stephanus' household in Corinth were his first converts in Achaia. So he didn't even think about or mention the converts here in Athens. This was not part of his original ministry plan, and nor was it a huge metropolis like he was, you know, ready for or aimed for. And some people think that, you know, Paul changed his ministry focus when he went on to Corinth, because when he got there, he said, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So some have wondered if Paul, traveling to Corinth, thought to himself, you know, I'm not going to ever repeat that tactic of quoting poets and, you know, trying to meet people where they are at and dealing with their culture. I'm going to change my focus and I'm just going to simply preach the cross of Christ. But I think that Paul had always preached Jesus Christ and him crucified. When he said that to the Corinthians, I think what he was saying was, I'm doing things in contrast to the false apostles who came with such smooth human words. No, if there was a failure in Paul's ministry in Athens, I think that it was because of the Athenians and not because of Paul or his ministry focus. 
It was hard soil there in Athens, and praise God, a few people did come to Christ. But now Paul has gone from Philippi to Thessalonica to Berea and now to Athens. And in chapter 18, we'll see him go over into Corinth, a major ministry move in Paul's life. God bless you. And amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.